Welcome to In the Stacks, brought to you by the Lewistown Public Library in Lewistown, Montana, a podcast about the wide and wild world of libraries. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of In the Stacks, our 17th since we started this thing, if you can believe that. This episode is a very special one and a very, very exciting one. Chris Latre calls himself not a writer, not a poet, but a storyteller in the way that stories can be shared in so many different forms. He is an author of the books One Sentence Journal, short poems and essays from the world at large, which was the winner of the 2018 Montana Book Award and the 2019 High Plains Book Award, as well as Descended from a Travel-Worn Satchel, a book of haiku and haiboon poetry, and his latest book, Becoming Little Shell, comes out on Milkweed Editions next year. I was a little nervous for this conversation as I am a big fan of Chris and Chris's work, Um, So last summer, I was on the bill to perform at a poetry reading for an arts festival in Billings, Montana, and this was the first time I had ever performed at such an event before. And when I saw that Chris Latre, the Chris Latre, was also going to be reading at this event, I was so stoked that I was going to get to meet him and perform alongside him. And then COVID ramped up again and the festival got canceled, it didn't happen. So this conversation that you're going to hear is actually the first time that I've got to meet Chris in person. So this was very exciting for me personally. Chris is Métis and an enrolled member of the Little Shell Tribe of Chippewa Cree Indians, who only received federal recognition from the United States government in 2019. And these identities are such an important part of who Chris is and the stories that he tells and his knowledge and his passion about these people, his people, is so palpable and enthusiastic. He has such a charm and an ability to immediately connect with people. And that made this conversation that you're about to hear such a delight. Chris so kindly visited the library for a whole day of events. We recorded this conversation in the morning, and then he met with the Genealogical Society that works here at the library. He helped lead our teen writers group that afternoon, and then that evening he gave his presentation entitled The Day That Finally Came, about the history of the Little Shell people and how they became the landless Indians and then their journey to um, finally receiving federal recognition. I learned so much from Chris over the course of this day, and I'm really excited that I get to bring you guys this conversation that we had. Chris and I talked about his background, his history, um, about writing and creativity. Uh, We had a long conversation about the art of observation and how important that is to writing. We talked about Missoula, Montana, which is a place we both love. And then we even continued to talk after this conversation stopped, or after the recording stopped. Um, He's just a very engaging conversationalist, as you will see. So with that introduction, I know you guys are going to enjoy this. 
So here's my conversation with Chris Latre. with uh, our new friend, Chris Latre. How are you today? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing excellent. We're very, very excited for what we've been calling Chris Latre Day. Here it's at the quite library. a day, I've got a lot it of stuff is. going on. Yes, yeah. um, we've got a lot of folks who are very excited to, to see you today. So I'm happy to hear that. It's gonna be a wonderful, wonderful Chris Latre Day. Well, it's kind of a homecoming for me, having, <laughs> without ever really having spent much time at all here, so I'm excited about it too. Nice. Yeah, you said you had family in this area? Yeah, I mean, my both sides of my dad's family were part of the original families that founded this town, you know, from the Red River Valley. So it's a big deal to me. Yeah. Yes. It's a big deal to us, too. Ah, we're very excited we're to have this all coming together. Mm -hmm. So can you just kind of give us your basic elevator speech intro to who you are and... Um, a little bit about, about your background. Sure. Well, I am, uh, like the bios I turn into people when they always ask for things like this, is I'm a Métis storyteller. My tribal ID, I am enrolled with the Little Shell Tribe of Chippewa Indians. So since the Métis are not a culturally recognized group in the United States, uh, my ID says I'm Chippewa Cree, which mm -hmm. I'm fine with being called any of those things. Yeah. I am happy to be called a proud member of the Pemina Band of... Chippewa Indians who originated from the Red River Valley, you know, and which is now, you know, uh, the border of North Dakota and, and, and Minnesota. Okay. But we moved west. Well, I mean, we constantly migrated back and forth between there and here. So I wouldn't even necessarily call it a movement. You yeah. just kind of ended up getting stuck here in some ways. Yeah. But, you know, I, I've published a couple books and... One was a book called One Sentence Journal, which came out in 2018 and won the Montana Book Award and uh, High Plains Book Award. And then I followed that up just this last fall in 2021 with a book of mostly haiku poetry called Descended from a Travel-Worn Satchel. And then next year I have a big nonfiction book coming out with Milkweed called Becoming Little Shell. And I'm actually, after I talk to you today, I'm going back to my dumpy motel room and talking to my editor, you know, oh, wow. make plans as far as hopefully have a firmer idea of the release date and all that stuff. Nice. So I keep very busy as a full-time writer. Awesome. Love it. Is that enough? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like, kind of what your family life sure. was like as a kid? So I grew up in Frenchtown, which is... I don't know, maybe 15 miles west of Missoula. Um, that's where I went to school, K through 12. And then we also, you know, for most of my time, lived up, lived up six mile, which is another 10 miles west. Yep. Um, what I didn't know at the time, so I grew up, you know, my dad was born here in Lewistown. Oh. And he and my grandfather, uh, uh, denied our indigenous heritage, even though I knew 
we were Chippewa just because, like, my grandmother would talk about it, mm-hmm. who was from Roy, you know. So yeah. my Donny side of the family is buried in Roy, and my Latre side of the family is buried here in Lewistown. And so I grew up in this kind of confused middle world, as so many Métis people can relate to, between culture of am I a white person, am I indigenous yeah, person, what's the difference even? Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, what I ultimately discovered through the process of writing this be- be- Becoming Little Shell book is that, like so many other communities in Montana, Frenchtown was kind of a resettlement zone for Red River Métis. And all of these families that I grew up with, Deshaw, uh, Lavoie, Lucier, these are all family names that go back to when towns like Green Bay and Chicago were Métis trading posts. There's a bunch of Lucers buried up here, you know, in Lewistown, you know. So we were culturally related, but nobody knew, you know. Anybody who knew were probably like our grandparents and stuff, and they weren't talking about it for good reason, you know. Um, So, I, you know, I grew up a country boy, you know, with... 4-H animals and running around out in the woods and riding my bike all over places, you know, in ways that I don't think kids really get to get to do anymore. So, you know, I didn't have the traditional Montana hunting and fishing background because my dad wasn't into that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I loved how I grew up. I loved being just so connected to the land, you know, without really even ever thinking about it it just happened yeah i think a lot of kids around here grow up that way even now like um you mentioned 4-h and Alyssa, our director is way into 4-h so i loved it i'm sure she'll talk your ear off about it but yeah it's it's huge Uh uh-huh which is great i even kind of remember the 4-h pledge i pledged my (laughs) i i i off air like four Head for greater hands, loyalty, heart, my hands, heart, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. Awesome. Um, all right. So getting kind of into the writing okay. part of your life. Um, when did you kind of discover writing as a practice, as a thing? Were you young, you know, as, as a kid? Kind of what were your influences early on? My influences, you know, I, when I, as, as early as junior high or earlier, my goal is I was going to be a rock star and I was going to write books on the side. Nice. That's the dream. It is the dream. And I've kind of flip-flopped it because yeah. now I write but I, and I still play in this very loud rock band nice. on the side. So I've kind of, you know, just flip-flopped the, the disciplines. But like when I graduated from eighth grade, my my teacher, I won the reading award and the the prize for winning the eighth grade reading award was a blank journal and this is back in the you know now you can get one just about in any store but back then it was kind of like who would want a blank journal you know and she inscribed in the you know inside the cover you know this is to help you on your way to writing your first fantasy novel because i was really into fantasy you know lord of the rings and conan the barbarian and elric and all of these things and you know, me and my friends played Dungeons and Dragons all the time. You know, I the early, and the early, too. like first edition. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, see, I knew I liked you. And, and what I would do, these stories I would write, like for English class and stuff, were just like retellings of the adventures that we had had yeah. over the weekend. You know, and she thought it was just this original thought of my own, and I was just stealing what we'd done. You yeah. know, but um, so I always wanted to. And then you know, I 
I dabbled in um, like crime fiction and and noir stuff and had some short stories in various anthologies, you know, like 10 or 12 years ago and kind of reached a point then where I thought, you know, what I'm doing isn't being done better than by other people already. And I, you know, I was kind of in this in-between, well, what am I going to do? I was still writing and that's kind of the result of that period is what became One Sentence Journal, yeah. where I kind of found my niche and my voice through the practice of just doing it without thinking, like, is this what I should be doing? Yeah. I was just doing it anyway, yeah. you know? And when that came out and I expected, you know, to sell 50 copies and my mom was going to buy 40 of them, <sighs> it just, it just, whatever reason, it just really connected with people, yeah. you know? And still does, totally. you know? That's something I loved about it. It was, there were lots of things I loved about it. Um, I lived in Missoula for like 10 years, mm -hmm. almost 10 years. Um, and just all of the specific little haunts that you just right. got flippers, flippers and um, what else? Charlie B's uh -huh. and just all of these really specific places where like if you didn't live in Missoula and like know the lore of those right. places, um, like you captured it really well. And it was just, it was so neat to kind of revisit Missoula a little bit yeah. through that book. Um, and I don't realize that. Yeah. I, I, you know, to me, that was just, I was just writing about this stuff. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize that, that that stuff really was even in there. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I loved that about it. Um, and all of the, the observations were so sharp, like very specific, um, specific things that you don't even notice that you notice. Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, um, and 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 the, yeah, like you said, just as a one sentence journal as a practice, yeah, I think is such a great concept. And you'll get to meet some of our teen writers later this afternoon. Um, but they all got a copy of that book. Okay. And we kind of talked about that last week about how you know sometimes the the act of writing can seem so daunting. And overwhelming, mm -hmm. especially as a young person, like you have to, right. if you're going to be a writer, you have to sit down and write, you know, a novel length book, but really it can be, you know, write one thing that happened to you today, one thing you noticed today. And that, that's something I try to um, really emphasize with them is that art of observation, really honing that skill and then recording it. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's one of my favorite things that you know, I say I make my living as a full-time writer. It's not the writing so much that makes my living. It's like the writing-adjacent things, yeah. opportunities that have come to me. Like, you know, the Missoula Writing Collaborative, mm -hmm. which which is a nonprofit organization that organization. sends, yeah, writers out to elementary schools to mm -hmm. teach poetry. And when they ask me, I, you know, I don't, I've never taken a poetry class in my life. Yeah. And, and that's something that I've come to love so much and in many ways feels like the most important work I'm doing is going up to these, to schools on the reservation yeah. and teaching. I don't even like the word teaching. It's like, I just start the conversation, you know, and I'm learning it as much or more from them as they are from me. Yeah. Because fourth graders, it's like the perfect age, you yeah. know. They're they're smart enough that that I you know, anything I do with them I will do in an adult workshop and not even make any changes. I might drop a few F bombs in the adult <laughs> in the adult class, you know, but but they're just that they're so connected still to that kind of raw 
existence of being human that we oh, yeah. kind of try and wall off from ourselves. Yeah. It's um, very honest without yeah. being like performative. Right. Like kids at that age don't worry about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's purely expression. It really is. And I love that because that's how I want to be. Yeah. You know, that's part of it. I mean, you don't, you have to be just cracked open. Totally. And, and for better or worse, you know, because that brings on a lot of sorrow as well and heartbreak. Yeah. But, you know, as I, I tell the kids, you know, we think of heartbreak as always kind of like a sad or bad thing. But, but then I ask them, you know, have you ever laughed so hard you cried? <laughs> or have you ever been so happy you cried? Yeah. That's heartbreak too. Only it's not, it's, it's the flip side of sorrow. It's joy. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll, I'll probably cry for joy at some point today, you know, yeah. as, as likely as I will for something that just is really deeply emotional, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh I gosh, love that about that's, kids. That's such a deep, <laughs> like, concept. The idea of, like, heartbreak is sure not, not But even sad, tears, you know? even tears were so committed to not showing that kind of emotion. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think we're better for it, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I've given up trying to explain away the tears that I, every time I do any yeah. kind of a talk or something's going to come up that is going to make me feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I want to. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that answer. That was yeah. amazing. Um, so kind of back to your, um, the background, sort of the beginnings of your writing a little bit. So I read that you left your job in manufacturing in 2015. Mm -hmm. You talk about that in one sentence journal a little bit um, to pursue writing full time father following the death of your father. Right. And when I read that, I thought of um, Mark Gibbons because he kind of has a similar story. Yeah. He came and or he was virtual, <laughs> did a program with us back in the fall. Right. And he kind of had a similar story so that struck me that similarity well he's definitely yeah. a face for radio guy like I oh am totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah that event motivated him to kind of uh, that's when he went after his mfa and he pursued writing full-time mm -hmm. was after his father passed away and um i was wondering if you could speak to kind of the effect of your father's death on your writing and processing you kind of touched on that on the the heartbreak part of it um but yeah, more specifically, how does that inform your writing? Well, you know, my dad worked the same job for 43, 44 years or something like that. Yeah. And he worked it long enough to where he had so many health problems by the time. And, you know, he didn't, he quit because the mill shut down. You know, he was already past retirement age, but it's, yeah. it's what he loved to do, you know, but was he at the mill out in Frenchtown? At the mill, the paper oh, mill, okay. which I can see from my front porch <laughs> yeah. when I step out, yeah. you know, off in the distance, what's left of it. Right. Um, but I just realized, you know, that kind of work ethic just wasn't, I mean, there's work ethic and then there's devoting your life to something that doesn't care about you and you just work yourself to death. And I did not want to do that. I had all these dreams when I left high school and I, I maintained the pursuit of them. But it was always, you know, this job was, you know, like, well, you know, the whole idea to fall back on stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, and and I just I just didn't want to go down that road, you know. Yeah. And and coupled with, you know, he, he I you know, I know still 
essentially nothing about his life because he never talked about it. Yeah. I don't. I was out yesterday at Big Spring Creek, you know, and I drove out to a place where it was a little outside of town, so uh-huh. I had kind of a feel maybe for what it was like fifty years ago, yeah. you know, yeah. or longer. Uh, and I thought about could my could my dad have ridden a horse through this field because I know riding horses and training horses were part of his life back then which was no part of the man that I knew yeah that was nothing we saw my dad ride a horse once you know because a a pig got out you know and and it goes racing he goes racing (laughs) off across the field on this little half pony half Appaloosa (laughs) feet practically dragging on the ground and, and we were dumbfounded what the hell is dad doing on a horse you know so that kind of thing. I'd, and he yeah. was just starting to talk about it when when he died. And, and that was also about the same time that I met Nicholas Vrooman, who wrote this book. The whole, con- the whole country was one robe, the little shells, Montana, or whatever that whole title is. And, yeah. and that, for me, was a revelatory moment because in that book, you know, I look in the index and there's a bunch of Donies referenced and I look and there's yeah. a bunch of Latrades referenced and I you know I kind of had an idea about I'd heard about the little shell at that point never heard my dad talk about it never heard him say the word Métis I don't know if he ever knew any of that but how could he not you know Yeah So I just felt like I I can't I can't keep just selling my soul to these people that if it would benefit them would cut me loose in a heartbreak, yeah. heartbeat, you know? Yeah. And just kind of made a plan. We even had a whiteboard on the wall, Freedom 17, <gasps> of all the things that needed to be taken care of. And I ended up leaving, you know, two years early. Yeah. Um, just finally just had it. Yeah. And here we are, you know? Yeah. So do you think his, his kind of, uh, not... I don't know if denial is the right word, but his not talking about the Métis uh, kind of background, was that self-protective? Is that, like, to protect you guys as kids? Like, kind of, what, what, what was his motivation, do you think, for... Well, it's very common among yeah. indigenous people and, you know, the landless Indians, the Métis uh-huh. in Montana in particular... So you, you you go back a few generations, right? Yeah. So you've got people who are going to boarding school and having any of their connection to their culture literally beaten out of them. Yeah. So certainly members of my family had to, or particularly when I say my family, I'm talking the broad, the, the, the kinship network that yeah. is a huge part of who we are as Métis. It's what connects us to all these communities all over the state. Yeah. And so there was that. There was the racism that I'm sure he endured, which probably goes on still in this town. Absolutely. And him not wanting to be associated with that. You know, he ended up growing up in Hamilton, which was not a particularly strong indigenous community Mm -hmm. as a man who obviously was indigenous, just in his features what people, you know, associate with indigeneity, which I don't really look like that, you know, um, and he had to fight a lot. And I'm sure he, you know, there's this whole culture of, without getting too deep, generational trauma. And this is why you should buy Becoming Little Shell next week and go into all that. You know, and, and just that shared experience of so many people, that generational trauma over and over. You know, his dad was was physically and emotionally abusive to him and an alcoholic and 
and based on his upbringing, you know, and so it's just all of these factors that are very common to people, indigenous people. You know, my my grandparents' era and their parents could literally be deported to Canada as Canadian Indians. That was the governmental policy, mm-hmm. you know. So if you could hide it, you did for your own sake and the sake of your family. Yeah. And that just gets passed on generation after generation. Yeah. Now it's up to us to reclaim it, you know. Yeah. Do you feel like it's changed in a positive way? Do you feel like it's it's coming more towards an acceptance within the Métis and outside of that group of people as... I would say changing. Yeah, yeah. You know, so for every two steps forward, you fall a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that that's just non-white culture in the United States you know I just finished listening to the 1619 project Mm -hmm. on my way out here Mm -hmm. you know and and the the black experience while different it's not actually it's not apples and oranges but it's not apples and apples either with the indigenous experience and all the ways that you know we can celebrate that you know we have an indigenous woman as the secretary of the interior. And that's mm-hmm. a big deal in the same way that having a black president was a big deal in the yeah. black community. But there's still all these things that still aren't happening, you yeah. know? So you can have both. You can be happy about the one thing and still just be in an outrage about another, yeah. you know, a friend of mine who was working on a indigenous language revitalization education project uh-huh. you know the other day he told me you know i just read this thing and i just don't see how you're not just in a constant state of rage and she paused a second and started laughing and i said you're laughing because you know i am <gasps> in a constant state of rage right she said yeah it's true and i don't blame you you yeah. know you immerse yourself in federal Indian policy for a decade, and it is hard not to be oh, yeah. in a constant state of rage. You know, I mean, just one simple fact. You know, we couldn't even practice our traditional religions until 1978. Yeah. I was already a KISS fan by 1978, <laughs> you know? I already had a bunch of their records, and yet, you know, so all of this stuff, it's not ancient history. Even yeah. the Métis people who founded Lewistown, you yeah. know, a couple generations, great-great-grandfather. Right. That is living current history. Yeah. Things just happen so fast, that, uh-huh. but that doesn't mean it was that long ago, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think if people were, how you were talking about having those two things right. exist at once, like the positive change and also like things that definitely need yeah. addressed. Um, I think it's so hard for people. It is. Society at large yeah. to see it. It's either like... Right completely going in a positive direction or completely not. Yeah. Well, it's not so, perfect, so to heck with it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. That black and white right. thinking. Right. Yeah. I'm doing a really good job of not using any profanities here. So. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. You, Mildly. You go for it's it. It's good practice. <laughs> we, we can all handle it. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's talk about Missoula again. Okay. Because it's my... Since we're talking profanities. Of, what, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I kind of said you you captured that specific charm really so wonderfully in um, in one sentence journal. Um, but is there anything like, or what specifically about Missoula 
speaks to you creatively. There is so much of it in that book. Like it's gotta just be, or I sensed at least that it's that particular place is hugely creatively inspiring. I mean, there's so many artists and writers Mm -hmm. in that area. So obviously it is to some, to some folks, but what's specifically about that area area speaks to you in a creative way. Well, you know, you know, I mentioned earlier the connection to the land. So, you know, there's a lot about just the landscape there that I've always been connected to because that's where I grew up, you know, Mm -hmm. and I've left and come back and left and come back. And now I'm back talk about leaving all the time just because it's changing so much. Oh, totally. Um, (laughs) And not in a way that I'm really happy with, you know? I agree, yeah. Um, But, you know, the Missoula Valley is a crossroads of so many people. Mm -hmm. And I think there's that cultural memory. And I talk about that in the book, too, how, like, Missoula, the Missoula Valley has been a place where Métis people have gone to find work for... Mm -hmm. A couple centuries, yeah. you know. So my dad, in in coming to Missoula and finding a job and working there, was just part of a long line of Métis men making their living. So, you know, when you think about like the I ninety interstate corridor from east to west and the Highway ninety three mm-hmm. north to south, you know, and the Mullen Road that basically is I ninety now. Yeah, you know, those were all built on cart tracks from Métis Red River carts. So, you know, sometimes I don't, you know, at the time that I was writing One Sentence Journal, that wasn't like front of my brain knowledge, mm-hmm. but I, I have to believe that there's some of that cultural memory there too. Oh, yeah. Um, and just knowing the, the the story of like Hellgate Canyon and how it got its name and, yeah. and just all of that kind of history. So just knowing it so well is part of what makes it you know, important to me. But creatively, yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, it, it, it's a very, because of the university and uh-huh. and having kind of a storied writing program, which, mm-hmm. you know, in the last five to ten years, they've done their best to try and torpedo it from within. Is <laughs> You know, I think it's recovering now, but, you know, you know, we have produced some great writers. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I, I kind of maintain a bit of a, chip on my shoulder about that wanting to stay kind of on the fringes yeah um because i think getting too immersed in that whole university culture and all that stuff academia is 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 like my nemesis you know it's it's like we talk about what you mentioned about those kids thinking you have to produce an idea of what you're supposed to produce as a writer. And and there's a whole industry that we call, you know, the literary industrial complex Mm -hmm. that is trying to do that. I think that encourages people and creates these rules. And I haven't followed a single rule, you know, and it's worked out for me. It doesn't mean it's going to work out for everybody, but at the same time, there are plenty of people who follow the rules that it doesn't work, that doesn't work out for. And they end up with, you know, five or six figures in debt to go along with it. And then sometimes it does work out. So yeah. it's, it's, it's all of these things. There's no one way to do it. Right. You know, but I, I, like, like when One Sentence Journal came out, after years of playing rock shows, I was so convinced that, you know, again, five people would show up or whatever. And I almost didn't do like a book release event. Oh, wow. Um, but it was packed. And, yeah. you know, One Sentence Journal and now Descended, 
are sell steadily. So I can't. I've been so embraced by the Missoula and by Missoula, like Missoula County and mm -hmm. community yeah. in ways I never expected to. And, you know, some of that is the the literati, as we might call it. <laughs> but most of it's just regular people, you yeah. know. And, and that's, I'm just regular people, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's who I want to connect to. Yeah. I think that's another really, like, attractive piece of that book, too, is that it's, like, accessible, you know. Like, it's not... Um, this really like heady yeah. <laughs> up here kind of uh, language or story, anything like that. Um, and it felt very like you talked about the like the memory of of you know of Missoula and growing up there. And so a lot of a lot of it felt unconscious almost, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like it wasn't. Um, and the fact that it's the one sentence a day kind of practice. That it wasn't like, there's such a flow. It felt unconscious. Yeah. You know? Well, it was. Yeah. It was never written. It wasn't ever like, I'm going to write a book and this is what it's going to yeah. be. Yeah. I just had all this stuff I'd written. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, this would work as a book. And really yeah. what it was is, at least as far as the one sentence stuff, you know, because they're turned into poems. Uh-huh. And that was a direct, direct relationship to reading Braided Creek, A Conversation in Poetry by... Jim Harrison and Ted Kuzer, because yeah. that book is them, you know, the stories is they were mailing on postcards oh, cool. these short poems to each other back and forth. Yeah. And when I read that book and I saw what their poems looked like, I just thought, if I picked my best sentences and reconfigured them yeah. and tweaked them to be just short little poems, it's kind of the same thing, you know? Yeah. And... It's kind of the same thing, you know? I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Harrison and Kuzer, but those are certain. If that book didn't exist, my book wouldn't exist. Yeah. I thought it was all of the interactions with wildlife, too. Yeah. Were so. There was lots of very beautiful moments, and there was a lot of hilarious moments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like you captured these relationships you have with all of the wildlife that you see basically out your back door mm -hmm. <laughs> and kind of like the sometimes rocky relationship you have right. with them. <laughs> well, they are. Yeah. You know, yeah. when I say relatives, like when in my current writing, I mean everybody, not yeah. just human relatives. Yeah. But my, And that's part of going back and trying to reconnect to this cosmic worldview, this spiritual mm -hmm. worldview that comes from the indigenous level that we yeah. all have at yeah. some point in our background. We've just lost connection to that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're, they're my neighbors. You know, all yeah. of these critters, the pheasants and the <laughs> rabbits and deer and yeah. coyotes and foxes, all of it. They are my neighbors. Yeah. You know, and, and I look out for them and I like to think that they're looking out for me too, you yeah. know? Did you hear about the wolverine in town here a couple no. weeks ago? No. There was a wolverine that was spotted out, um, kind of out that way, uh, off the highway, at like 8.30 in the morning or something. Wow. And then someone got a picture of it by the junior high, which is like a block across Main Street, like a block up this way. Wow. <laughs> in town. Yeah, see, it that's was, one of those animals that I would love to see. Oh, yeah. It, I was nerding out about it I'm sure. All day. I would be, too. <laughs> it's wild. Because it's always one of these tourists, like, in Glacier, that yeah. is there for 10 minutes, 
and says, oh, we saw a Wolverine, and you're like, bro! Right? You know? That's a once-in-a-lifetime. It's a once-in-a-lifetime. It's never going to come yeah. that close again. Yeah. Oh, it was it was interesting. Um, let's see. We covered a lot of this. Um, maybe if, if you want to go into a little more kind of what the what the identity of Métis means, kind of just for the edification of listeners, like on a cultural level, a historical level, a personal level, um, you got all these intersections of identity uh-huh. that um, societally, I, I can sense there's like a, a pressure to compress that all into one. Yeah. And kind of how do you, how would you describe that and kind of how, yeah, you just want to talk about that. And what's so, that when, so when way. I talk about Métis, capital M Métis, mm-hmm. it's, you know, Métis is a French word for mixed. Yep. And you'll see it with a lowercase m, and that's just the literal word. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you see a capital M, what, what I'm talking about is the very specific culture that resulted from the interaction between Europeans and indigenous people in the Red River Valley going back to the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it was is you had French and English and Welsh traders moving into those regions, setting up trading posts and basically hiring indigenous people to go out and, at least in the early days, and trap. So it's primarily, we're talking the beaver fur trade. Meanwhile, these guys are marrying indigenous women and that cross marriage and the kinship ties that resulted continuing through the indigenous side of the relationship Mm -hmm. is really what created the Métis as this post-contact specific indigenous culture. Yeah. Um, And the idea being, you know, the the mix is you take like the best of both worlds. So you have the the land knowledge and the even the spirituality and folklore of primarily Ojibwa and Cree people mm-hmm. mixed with European influence like like the fabrics and 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 you know cooking utensils and even language uh-huh. so our own identified language called Michif was a result of that mm-hmm. which is like a trade language which is what English basically is too yeah it's oh, a yeah. trade language that was primarily like French with some Gaelic nouns intermixed with the verb heavy languages of Ojibwa and Cree yeah. so that's what Michif is and so like my Great great grandfather Mose Latre, who you know built Reed's Fort here in Lewistown, mm-hmm. was also an interpreter because he spoke like six languages. Yeah. He spoke French. He spoke uh, Ojibwe and Cree. He learned like Dakota and and could speak English. So yeah. you know he was valuable, and that was a thing for Métis people too. Music, you know, we adopted the fiddle of the of the French. So yeah. fiddle music and jig dancing. Again, depending on where you are, like the front range Métis community in Teton Canyon, you know, frit fiddle dancing. They don't have any interest in the drumming and dancing that we do like in our powwow because yeah. that wasn't a big part of the culture that mm-hmm. they hung on to. So, so it's all those things mixed together. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, 
you know, we were arguably the premier buffalo hunters in the Northern Plains from the early 1800s until the buffalo were gone, you know, in the 1870s, yeah. 1880s. Because we would take these Red River carts, which was our invention, the two-wheeled carts that are, you know, most historians identify as, you know, the first use of the wheel in that part of the continent. Wow. Um, because we didn't, you know, that's one of the knocks is people say, you know, like the Europeans would come over and say, these people are so primitive, they don't even use the wheel. Well, we didn't have to. Because yeah. until we got to the plains, we had the birch bark canoe, which was our invention. Because yeah. we used rivers and lakes was how we transported things. We didn't need roads. Yeah. We didn't need the wheel. Yeah. Um, so we came out of all that and, and moved west. And, you know, we're based in... The Red River Valley, Pembina, which is, you know, right in the corner of North Dakota, Canada, and Minnesota, and went west from there and would go out twice a year back and forth to gather meat and hides to trade with and sell pemmican. Yeah. And as the herds got more and more dispersed, we'd go out and stay longer until mm-hmm. finally there's all these people spread out, which is includes these folks that started Lewistown yeah. when the government just slams the door, disenrolls everybody, and now were the landless Indians. Yeah. So that's you know, the fashion, the, the, the music, like I said, the dancing, the languages, all those things became very specific to this community of, of people. Thank you. It's pretty exciting, you yes. know? And it's a huge deal. To, I mean, it's a huger deal to me, I think, than... I don't know how many people really care about this kind of thing in our Netflix and, <laughs> and Spotify culture, you know? Right. But... I mean, it's everything to me now. Oh, absolutely. So you said you have your next book, mm-hmm. Coming Little Shell, coming out here this year. You want to tell us a little bit about that book and kind of what the writing process was for for that book and maybe how that differed from your other your other works? Well, it's, it's a total, you know, the other works are short poems and short essays, which this book is not. Yeah. So it's it's, you know... It's a big deal to me too, and and you know, it's it's the history of, you know, the Little Shell tribe and the Métis, and then the Little Shell is kind of what all of the landless Indians. That's the umbrella that we all fit under, and we finally got federal recognition in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. So that was like the happy ending I was hoping for, <sighs> yeah. and it happened, you know, before my book was finished, and then I had to work around like. You know, how do I approach that? Because it's not a secret. Yeah. You know, it's not like this, it's not like a mystery that, oh, I can't wait till the end to see if they get federally <laughs> recognized or not, you know? Yeah. So it's that history with the thread of my family and my dad's denial of our indigenous heritage. That's like the narrative thread that holds it all together, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I had to kind of recreate his life by talking to other people who experienced similarly because he wasn't around anymore yeah. for me to get just a direct story and talking to my mom and, you know, learning things about my dad and their early life together that I never knew before. So it was all that, um, you know, it should have been out already. The COVID pushed everything mm-hmm. back a year and then, yeah. you know, I never really had any hard deadlines. Once COVID started, my editor, Daniel Slager, who's the guy who runs Milkweed Editions, mm-hmm. they published Braiding Sweetgrass, among yeah. other things. They've published a bunch of Richard Wagamese, who was a Canadian Ojibwa writer, who's just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, you know, it took longer than I wanted it to. But at the same time, you know, last fall, we were invited for the first time ever out to a 
commemoration of the Treaty of Old Crossing of 1863, which happened in Minnesota, which for me that, like, like when I say, you know, different people, when they talk about how long we were disenrolled or how long we were landless, different people use different dates. Yeah. So someone might say it was 125 years or whatever because they base it on this event. For me, uh, I base it on that 1863 date because that's when things first kind of started to unravel. Yeah. Um, but we were invited out there and, you know, going to that event and speaking a little bit there. And then I took the time to drive back through the Turtle Mountain Reservation and the... Um, across North Dakota, which was our traditional lands, you know, that was just not even a year ago, you know, that yeah. was what, six months ago? And and that, to me, like if the book existed without the revelations I had, mm-hmm. it was profound, you know? Because yeah. like Little Shell in Montana, it's like, who the hell's Little Shell, you know? Isn't that those Indians in Haver or whatever, you know? Um, in Turtle Mountain, in Belcourt, which is where they're, the Turtle Mountain Chippewa are based you know, there's Little Shell's Street, and there's busts of him all over. And at the college, the tribal college, he's a big... Because he was a big deal, yeah. you know? He should be known as well as Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and all of these chiefs that devoted so much of their lives to the well-being and preservation of their people. Yeah. He just did it without a body count, you know? Mm-hmm. We love these big battles. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was prepared for that yeah but that's just not by the time he is on the scene that's just not how things played out you know he got screwed by the government in through legislative process basically you know um so yeah just gathering all that information and learning so much yeah you know like this presentation i'm going to do this evening has evolved since i first started doing it pre-pandemic you know and there are things I told people wrong three yeah. years ago. We won't tell anybody that. But, you know, like Little Shell was a, a hereditary title. It wasn't his actual name. Oh. So his real name is Ayab Tongue, which means he who rests on the way, which I can totally relate to. Um, but there are all these things that get attributed to Little Shell this and Little Shell that. And trying to figure out which Little Shell we're talking about, because there were three yeah. of them. You know, his grandfather and then his father. So the Pemina Chippewa, which is what we ultimately are, um, you know, this family was in charge for a hundred years, but it's a different concept of in charge. It's not like they say, we're going to do this and you're going to do that. You know, that was, people could do whatever they wanted, but it was the hereditary chief who would try and convince people of the way we should do things. And yeah. and whether you succeeded or not was how well you were able to collectively move people to move yeah. in a certain direction. Yeah. Nice. It's going to be a good book. I hope so. Yeah. Milkweed it... doesn't put out bad books, though. So. Yeah. Good. Good, good. All right. I feel like we've touched on all of the questions I have. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about and let people know? I, I don't know. I I always have things to say because I don't yeah. ever talk to people like outside of like a microphone, you know. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I just these things are important, you know. Yeah. These these connecting, you know, like I we think of time as this thing that just keeps moving forward, and it's not. You know, it's like we're caught in this whirlpool of time just spinning and spinning and spinning and stacking up and the cone is getting deeper because yeah. these same things just keep repeating themselves over and over. Whether we want to talk about, 
you know, an aggressive imperialist nation invading another one, like we're seeing in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what happened in North America. Yeah. We talk about, like, homeless people, houseless people, like, which we have so many in Missoula now, and you mm-hmm. see what's happening in Portland and Seattle and all these places, and, and that's who we were. Yeah. You know, we were those homeless people living on the fringes of communities that all the good people just wanted just do something about it. We don't want to see it. Well, there's a reason for that. There's decisions that get made in how we take care of each other as a society that creates that. Whether it's not taking care of veterans, whether it's having a just garbage can freaking health care system. Health care is great. It's the insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the for-profit health industry is amoral as far as I'm concerned. And that creates people living on the fringes who can't afford yeah. to be treated, you know, and, and, and so all those things. So that is something that just keeps repeating itself. What we see in the southern border with families being separated and children being taken, you know, mm-hmm. my great-great-grandmother was taken off the prairie after the cavalry is chasing Indians who left the reservation. So who knows what happened to her birth parents, yeah. you know? That's the kind of thing that happens on our southern border. So I see that again, and we... We have the capability to make those changes, but it takes civic engagement by everybody to make it happen. And we just repeatedly don't do that. That's my soapbox, you know? Yeah. Because we lived it. Right. And now, you know, who are we to let other people have to suffer the same things, you know? why your work's so important. That's why we're so... I hope people hear it. You know, I don't do it. I'm not like, I'm the voice of, you know, it's just, I just feel it deeply and I don't have anything else to talk about. I mean, and that passion is palpable. I hope so. (laughs) Like, it's so very clear that it's there and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Yes. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for... Thanks for asking me in here. ...willing to do this. Hello everyone, it's Brittany again. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. I know you did, I'm sure you all did. It was such a joy to meet Chris and to learn so, so much from him. Again, his books are One Sentence Journal and Descended from a Travel-Worn Satchel. They're both wonderful and they are out in the world to purchase at your local Montana indie bookstore or to check out right here at the Lewistown Public Library. We have both of them in our collection. And his next book, Becoming Little Shell, will be out in 2023. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of In the Stacks, where I believe we'll be talking about extraterrestrial encounters in Montana and all the accompanying literature. So that's one you don't want to miss. Thank you for listening, everyone. Bye. In the Stacks is produced by the staff at the Lewistown Public Library in Lewistown, Montana. Subscribe to In the Stacks on Spotify, Google, and all other major podcast platforms. Follow us at LPL Graham on Instagram or Lewistown Public Library on Facebook for the latest updates on library happenings, including the podcast. If you have an idea for an episode, 
or a topic you would like us to explore, email us at lewistownpubliclibrary at gmail.com. Thank you for supporting the library.